Well, backed by not-so-popular demand, considering it has six downloads at the time of this recording, we're doing Mothman Part 2. In Part 1, we went over some of the early sightings of Mothman, as well as some of the sightings of UFOs and other phenomena around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, from 1966 to 1968. In this episode, we will finish talking about these encounters we deem important, as well as get into the many encounters with the Men in Black that are detailed throughout the book. So strap in, as these stories... They're going to get weird. I'm Wes. And I'm Jake. And welcome to the Half Talentless Podcast. question uh why are we recording this thursday night at 2 a.m sorry technically friday morning i i can tell you exactly why jake because sorry one second because on wednesday night when we normally record i had work to do for the management class i was in to get my promotion which i successfully did oh so you're done with that yeah, no, I'm done with it. Today was the test. Okay, good, good, good. So that means you can uh, you can start writing our next episode. Uh, uh, yeah, that's what that meant. Let me rephrase this, Wes. What's the, ne- what's the next one we're doing? I have midterms next week. You're writing the next episode. Oh, that's right. You do. I, um, I believe you, know what? you would prob- wanted to do it on the Betty Andreessen abduction. Betty Andreessen, yep. I was just thinking that uh, I probably will write it on that. We'll see, though. If there's a specific request, I might take that instead. I'm kind of like a wing-it sort of guy, so the night before I'll think of something. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Also, Jake, what is this? Why did I have to wait to watch this video? Oh, my God. You sent me the other night. Because I'm just so proud that I found it. I'm, I want to get your live reaction, and I want it recorded. All right, you sent it last night. Now, I'm gonna have to keep it quiet because i don't think we can have that audio uh, on here but it's okay. i i think it's you're right i think you're right we can't have that audio on here but uh yeah just just watch the video it's it's loading <laughs> bro what the fuck am i watching just watch just watch <laughs> okay i mean like I come on, come on. That's the reaction I'm getting. I should not recorded this. I hate you. What do you want me to say, Jake? It's the stupidest video I've ever seen in my life. What do you mean? It's fucking it hysterical. Pretty... I was laughing my ass off when I, I found was... it. I mean, it's funny. It just, it's really like, funny. It really caught me by surprise. That dude is so over the top. It like yeah, dude. Have you seen? I don't know. It, I mean, it was have funny you not seen anything he's done before? I don't think so. <laughs> I, Jake, unlike you, I don't watch a lot of YouTube shorts. Okay, neither do that's I. That's my go-to. The reason that's a YouTube short is because that's the only way I could find it. I actually found it through uh, another video. But anyway. Um, <coughs> Wes, do you want to hear a story today? 
from from today? I guess so, yeah. So there's a reason I can't walk right now, which you didn't know, but I uh, I can't. Excuse me? I, well, I can walk. What? I can walk. Hey, yo. But it hurts. What? No, What's shut happening? Up. <laughs> shut up. No, I, I went to the gym today. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, and I ran into awesome. um, two friends from HCC. And one of them I'd never really known very well. But this dude has gotten jacked since I last saw him. Absolutely fucking shredded. Shredded like provolone, dude. The guy is fucking massive. So I'm like, uh, he's like, he's like, hey, you want to join us for a, for a bit? And I was, I was waiting on my friend, who I usually work out with. And I was like, absolutely, yeah. I want to work out with you. Um, so, so they're like, hey, we're doing we're Sounds doing to press. me like it was leg day. It was leg day. He goes, hey, we're doing leg press first. Why don't you join us? And then, if, you know, if, if you have to go, you have to go. And I'm like, cool. So, uh, it gets the leg press. Um, and they do a couple sets. Uh, and then they're like, they're like, you know, I had to go meet my friend while they were doing their sets. But when I come back with said friend, okay. <clears throat> they're like, hey, you want to join us? Both yeah. of you. And I'm like, perfect. Um, <clears throat> So they had just finished their set. So like, here, why don't you guys take over? And then a guy comes up and he's like, hey, are you guys still using this? Mm -hmm. or are you guys getting off? And they're like, well, we're, we just finished. But, and I'm like, I'll only do one because I've never done leg press before. I don't really do leg press. <clears throat> and I'm like, it's my first time back in the gym. I'm not, gonna, I'm not even doing leg day today. So I was like, I'll just, you know, I'll just do like a quick set. And they're like, oh, cool. All right, you do, you do a set. And so this guy and my, my, mm -hmm. my friend who I was kind of closer with, they're like, how many, how many, how many you want on here? And this guy had just gotten done with literally Wes. I shit you not, he had uh, eight plates on the on the on the leg press. Yep. <laughs> he had just he had just, and he just fucking tore through it like a goddamn maniac, right? So he's like, how many do you want? And me, not wanting to look like a bitch, baby, I'm like, just leave it on. <laughs> Dude, I did not say what? that. I did not what say that. I did not you? say that. Wes, I didn't don't say ego that. Lift. <laughs> don't ego lift. Yes, I know. I so so I was like, I don't know how many do you think I should put on. They're like, well, how much do you squat? And this is this is another source source subject for me because I haven't squatted in a while. And back when I did, I was like just starting to ramp up with it. I I played it real safe for a long time, so I was like never getting any gains, and I wasn't really working anything, but I didn't realize it at the time. So I was like, I don't know, about 140. They're like, all right, we're going to take, we're going to leave you with two plates on each side. And I'm like, wait, 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 what? Yeah. <laughs> it's a buck, 180 pounds for anyone who's wondering. Uh, and I'm like, cool. If you guys think I can do it, I'll do it. And so like, all right, we'll be here to spot you the whole time. So I, I get in the leg press. I, I push the weight up and I'm like, holy shit. Oh my god, this is fucking heavy as shit. And so I'm like, guys, I don't know how many of these I'm going to be able to do. And they're like, no, 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 you're fine. You're not even struggling. Because I wasn't. I wasn't like shaking or anything. And I'm like, okay. And I do two sets of that. I'm like, I need to stop. <laughs> I, sorry, I didn't do two sets. I did two reps. My apologies. My apologies. Reps. I did two reps. And I'm like, I need to stop. And they're like, dude, you're not shaking. You're fine. We're here to spot you. Don't worry. And I'm like, okay. And I start doing another one. And I can already feel my legs are like... I'm gonna fucking kill you. My legs, my legs are like just, just one moment where you let off on the effort. I'm a fucking snap. I'm a snap in half. I got fucking twicking. You're gonna die. And I'm like, 
fuck. Okay, so I'm doing like, I do like one more, and I'm like, okay, four is enough. Guys, this is gonna fucking kill me. And they're like, and they're like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, four is perfectly respectable. And then I get off, and I'm like, that's a lot more than I think I should have been doing. And they're like, oh yeah, I guess you did say you hadn't been to the gym in a while. And I was like, yeah, I haven't. And when I did, I never fucking did that. So I was, whew, oh my God. What, so as soon as I stood up, my legs were like, ha, good luck getting anything out of us for the rest of the day. And I was like, fuck. Mm-hmm. So like going upstairs sucks right now. Standing up sucks right now. So my <laughs> the way my computer is set up, it's like underneath the desk. And I had to plug in a U. Uh, yeah, I remember. No, I had to, I had to plug in a, a flash drive earlier to download some stuff I'm going to need this weekend. And I was like, I was like, I went under the desk and I'm like, am I going to be able to get back up? Am I going to be stuck down here? <laughs> like, I thought, I thought you were going to call like on Discord. And I was you're calling your roommate. <laughs> oh, like, no. like, guys, oh, no. help. Oh my gosh. I, I don't think, I think I just live down there at that point. I'd, I'd be too embarrassed. That's a great but, bonding experience. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean... I don't know what type of bonding you're doing with your roommates, Wes. Not that you have roommates, but... Look, I didn't want to make the joke. I felt that'd be <laughs> dude, inappropriate. Dude. So don't go there, all right? I had the it... opportunity. I, I withheld <laughs> the joke. Oh, man. Yeah. So, that's how I spent my day. And then, you know, I have a shit ton of wow. work this weekend. Oh, I told you I'm coming Damn, back this weekend, right? That sounds like allergies. Yeah, you did. Yeah, because I, I have a dentist appointment. Yay. All right. Uh, well, Wes, do you have anything you want to bring up before I we mean, get into it? I mean, this was some top-tier fucking banter. Um, yeah. Do I? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Okay. I'm going to warn you. I have a my phone, fucking crazy headache right now, so we'll see how this goes. Um, okay. So... Uh, you're you're in charge here, buddy. What's going on? <clears throat> yeah, sorry. I, I have to find the... All right. So where, <clears throat> where we last left off was uh, with the story of Ruth Foster, uh, who, as you remember, as you may remember, saw Mothman on her porch. Do you remember? Oh, Does wait, that ring any bell? Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Was she the baby lady? <laughs> no, 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 no. That was... Hold on. What was her name? Um, I believe that was like Linda Scarberry. I believe that was her name. Yeah, that sounds about right. Linda Scarbaby? Wait, what? No, Linda Scarberry, Wes. Oh, sorry. It's such a fitting name. I'm I'm control so, the word baby. The one, <laughs> yo, no, <laughs> stop. <laughs> oh my God! Yes, yes, so, yes. Mrs. Um, Mrs. Bennett, actually, it was Mrs. Bennett. Uh, in the TNT area. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
Which one was the porch lady? Miss Marcella Bennett. Which one was the porch lady? The one we just talked about, where we left off. Where Ruth we Foster. Off? Ruth Foster. She was the only one who really saw Mothman's face. Oh, that's right. She gave the description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, I remember now. Okay. Okay. Um. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot how fucking crazy they... I've been. A... I I wrote these notes last night. You know, or at least this follow-up bulleted list, if you can really call it notes. Um, because mm-hmm. I went through the book, the rest of the book, from page thirty-five to page one hundred thirty-five, paragraph by paragraph, seeing if any of it was something we'd want to use. Um, and oh my God, in that time, in the intervening like 24 hours, I've, everything about how crazy John Keel is went out of my brain. I I, like detoxified myself from it. And now (laughs) you forgot. (laughs) Well, take a moment, remind yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. So (laughs) we're our next encounter chronologically. It's actually the first one that gets talked about in the book. On page nine, and it's it's Connie Carpenter. Hold on, he, he doesn't even talk about the first encounter until page nine. Yeah. What the fuck is he doing with the rest of the time? Just don't don't make me relive this, please. Can I just can I just not? Can I just not have to? Like, dude, you don't understand. The second you're done with those first eight pages, you're you're fucking done. You're out. Like, you're free. You don't ever have to. Don't ever have to think about it ever again. Like ever. All right, fine. Don't think about it. Go ahead. Keep. keep well, actually, moving. before that, he talks about some of the Men in Black stuff that happens. He talks about Men in Black stuff first. <laughs> Which, then, like. I can't wait till we get to that. The midpoint of the encounters. Then, uh, more Men in Black, and the whole time you're just wondering why he can't just stick to a story. My personal theory is that he was doing illicit drugs at the time uh, while he was writing this. Did a drug? At least a weed. Anyway. Did he <coughs> did he snort the the weed? The weed? Probably. You know, I think um, I think it's likely that he put the weed in a in a spork and then put a lighter beneath the spork. And then what do you would you lick the spork? I don't I don't know how to do drugs. You so you immediately <laughs> jumped to heroin. I was going <laughs> with a, like my oh, next one was like he his asshole. <laughs> you went full on like okay all right. Well, as I am from Hagerstown. Anyway, <laughs> keep us going. Um, <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm just gonna redirect you from the book because I could not be bothered to take notes on this fucking acid trip of a piece of literature. Anyway, God, my head hurts. My head is pounding. Um, Why don't you take like an Advil or something before I this? D- I, I do have Advil, actually, but I forgot to take it. It's all right. Um, do, you to, do you want to pause? We, can, we have the power to pause, Let's pause. Jake. Let's pause. Okay, we're back. I promise to stop bitching and moaning at this point. You went and took your legal substance speaking of legal substance jake maryland just voted to legalize recreational yeah yeah speaking of voting i did mean to mention this wes you know we both voted right so i did vote when you voted wes were you scared of the red wave 
<laughs> Yo, <laughs> this is this is a path you can't come back from, James. Wes, were you scared of the frightful red wave? Because I was. I was real worried. Famously, I'm pretty sure the, those Jake, opposition sure party waves. The entirety of the red wave. Like, Jake, the entirety of the red wave was in the building with me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, every, oh. every one of those people who were like instructing me on how to vote, this one lady, she was like, you want to do it um, on paper or electronically? And I was like, which one's faster? And she gave me this look. I'm like, what? What do you want me to say? <laughs> Let me sit down at this electron, like sit down and wait for one of the electronic booths to open or give me a piece of paper and let me scan it. Like... <laughs> it was it's asinine the way they treat like the way, I feel like the the red wave was absolutely on everyone's mindset in there. I wish I fucking wish I could go in there after this like today have them all be sitting in a corner like a support group of some sort. Oh my god. Man that frightful awful massive red wave that was foretold. Whew. Man. Yeah, it was it was the the wave to end all waves. Yeah, now all, all those uh all those red wave supporters now now know what you felt when you finished Game of Thrones, Wes. Most unsatisfying that is very of their electoral lives. It's so true. <laughs> I mean, this is spoiler alert for Game of Thrones. This is the electoral equivalent of Arya killing the Night King, you know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, dude. That really is. Uh, the good old red puddle. Woo! Damn, I shouldn't gloat. I shouldn't gloat. I should, I, I should gloat, actually. It's not much gloating. It's just hilarious. It's so funny. So funny. Because, like, it is unbelievably hard to do that bad when the other party is in power in a midterm. Like, holy... I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This isn't a politics. Yeah. It's it a politics podcast. Very, yeah, you're right. It's not. It was a very interesting election, though. Um, stuff like like the legalization of of the weed that was that yeah. surprised the shit out of me. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Let's let's you've, get into you've it. You've taken your legal it. substance, and now we can actually get back in the Mothman. Yeah. Now that you can focus. Okay. So, he writes. The moment I met Mrs. Hire's niece, Connie Carpenter, in 1966, I knew she was telling the truth because her eyes were reddened, watery, and almost swollen shut. I had seen these symptoms many times in my treks around the country investigating UFO reports. Witnesses who were unlucky enough to have a close encounter with an unidentified flying object, usually a dazzlingly bright aerial light, are exposed to actinic rays. They're just ultraviolet rays. I don't know why he keeps calling them actinic rays. He does yeah, all the time yep. in this book. Which can cause... Eye burn, medically known as Klieg conjunctivitis. These are the same kind of rays that tan your hide at the beach. If you lie in the bright sun without protecting your eyes, you can get conjunctivitis. Whatever they are, UFOs radiate intense actinic rays. There are now thousands of cases in which the witnesses suffered eye burns and temporary eye damage, even temporary blindness, after viewing a strange flying light in the sky. Uh, he then goes, he d devotes a whole paragraph to the case of. Um, <coughs> One man in 1973, which, don't know what has to do with Mothman, it's just another anecdote. Fucking love, anyway. 
Yeah. Sorry. I mean, it is, but it is a super interesting thing. This like <clears throat> red eye syndrome because it, it it almost looks like that. Like your eyes, like your irises are like reddened and, yeah. and sort of look burned. Um, and the I theory. I don't know if he's taught if you're getting to the point where he talks about, it, but like the theory of it being caused by Mothman and and his like see, staring into his eyes, kind of like staring into the sun, we gives you that there. similar. Okay, I wasn't sure if we were getting there or not, but that it's a very odd concept that just fascinates me when it comes to Mothman. Yeah, okay. Um, what puzzled me about Connie's case, however, was that she had not seen a splendid luminous flying saucer. She had seen a giant winged man in broad daylight. According to her story, Connie, a shy, sensitive 18-year-old, was driving home from church at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 27, 1966, when, as she passed the deserted greens of the Mason County golf course outside of New Haven, West Virginia, she suddenly saw a huge gray figure. It was shaped like a man, she said, but was much larger. It was at least seven feet tall and very broad. The thing that attracted her attention was not its size, but its eyes. It had, she said, large, round, fiercely glowing red eyes that focused on her with hypnotic effect. Quote, It's a wonder I didn't run off the road and have a wreck, she commented later. As she slowed, her eyes fixed on the apparition. A pair of wings unfolded from its back. They seemed to have a span of about ten feet. It was definitely not an ordinary bird, but a man-shaped thing which rose slowly off the ground, straight up like a helicopter, silently. Its wings did not flap in flight. It headed straight toward Connie's car, its horrible eyes fixed to her face. Then it swooped low over her head as she shoved the accelerator to the floorboards in utter hysteria. Connie's conjunctivitis lasted over two weeks, apparently caused by those blowing, glowing red eyes. At the tune of my first visit to Point Pleasant in 1966, I did not relate the winged weirdo to flying saucers. Later events not only prove that a relationship existed, but that relationship also is a vital clue to the whole mystery. And then he gets on to a bunch of shit. There's actually, he does get the on to a The way this guy fucking describes things and people is insane. Like, Dude, what is wait till you see what he it? says about Connie later. I have it specifically written down in my bulleted list uh, of, of notes. Don't Don't look at it yet. But he says look, something I, about her. I only need to look. The the strikingly attractive newly eighteen year old like that's where no, I feel no, like no, you're no, getting no, no, that no 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 Wes Wes stop it he says other people are strikingly like attractive but he says something about Connie that is so out of left field it's actually wild it's insane just you wait just you wait we'll get okay. to it I, I promise we'll get look. to it I won't look Wes I won't look. I, you're looking. Are you looking at the document right now? No, I'm not. No, you're, well, you're allowed to. You're allowed to. Just stay on the last page, and look. Look at the thing okay. I've just highlighted. All right, the last page. Yep, that's the one we're on. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, but in the middle of telling that story Wait, later, he that? says something about her for no reason. Okay, all right, all right, sorry, go ahead. Keep, keep we'll going. We'll get to it. Keep going. We'll get to it. Okay. I'll stop interrupting. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Dude, John Keel's a fucking madman. All right, I gotta go to page 30. He's like, I can't tell if he's just a total creeper or if he's just nuts. 
Um, I think it's a bit of both. Probably. It, I, <laughs> I, I feel like it's coming. I feel like it's coming. Ah, this is right. That evening, this is talking about the same day Connie Carpenter saw Mothman. It, yeah. Uh, he says, this is after he described, I'm just going to read the whole thing. The next morning, mm -hmm. the winged phantom pursued young Connie Carpenter near the Mason, West Virginia golf course. Course, sorry. Chapter two. That evening, it encored in St. Albans. Sheila Kane, 13, and her younger sister were walking home from the store when they saw an enormous something standing next to a local junkyard. Quote, It was gray and white with big red eyes, Sheila reported, and it must have been seven feet tall, taller than a man. I screamed and we ran home. It flew up in the air and followed us part of the way. Um. Okay, are we done with her? I think we are. Yeah, she is. Okay. Whew. I can breathe now. As soon as <laughs> yeah. I have 13, I start freaking out. Yeah, dude, as you should with John Keel. As you should. Oh, man. Okay. Jesus. What's All right. Stop? Sorry. Please continue. I'll stop. Okay, oh, I won't, but please continue. We're back to Woody. You ready to be back to Woody? Good old Woody Derringer? Yeah. Yep. Here's Gwen Martino. Did we already talk about Gwen Martino? Jake, how are you? I, I thought you were supposed to be the one prepared for this. Wes, there is no preparing for a John Keel book, okay? Here's what I did, Wes. You see what I did. I bullet listed everything, and I'm trying to make sure that I'm going over everything. But I think Gwen Martino was... This is yeah, why... that's New Jersey. We're not talking about it. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't talk about anything. There's like a... Like, half this book takes place in New York, which is annoying. I only included, like, one or two that I thought were, like, actually relevant. Because most of it oh, just... Like, oh! What? <laughs> oh! 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 No, it's in sorry. New York. It's 2.32 a.m. I can't do that. Um, okay. I probably can't either, but I'm still going to do it. <laughs> okay. Mr. Kevin D. and his nightcap subcommittee urged Woodrow Derenberger to submit to a psychiatric and medical examination okay, in early hold on, December hold on. before you continue um, have we discussed what NICAP is that's an yeah, important yeah. thing that was last episode there the uh, National Institute for the Cataloging of Aerial Phenomena I think yeah but we we said that right I just want to make sure we yeah yeah we said that last what time. they were National Investigations okay. Investigations Sorry. Committee on Aerial Phenomena my, my apologies all right Let's go. Yeah, John Keel does not like Nightcap. Um, yeah, anyway. In early December, Woody voluntarily entered St. Joseph's Hospital in Parkersburg and underwent hours of test administered by Dr. Morgan. I have changed his name here for reasons that will become obvious later on. A leading local psychiatrist and Peter Velarde, an EEG technician. In his final report, Dr. Morgan stated, There was no evidence of abnormalities at all. Subsequently, a report and interpretation was obtained from Baltimore, and the report indicated no abnormalities at all, and was a perfectly normal an electroencephalogram. Got, got it. It just took me a second. That's a word. Yeah, it's a word and a half. There was no evidence of organic brain damage or of seizure disorders. We are particularly concerned about epilepsy, and there was no evidence of this. 
The record was a normal record with no indication of any central nervous system, system pathology at all. There was no evidence of any psychiatric disorders. I submitted a report to the Pittsburgh Subcommittee of NICAP and the psychiatric examination of Mr. Derenberger in which I stated that I could find no evidence of medical disorder. Of mental disorder, sorry. There was no indication of any lower pathology. I found Mr. Derenberger to be normal. Normal's not really a great word to be using when talking about, you know, potentially having like yeah, a mental yeah. problem, but this... whatever. It's back in the day. I get it. So here's where John Keel really just grinds into NICAP uh, because he doesn't like him. So the NICAP investigators sent the medical records onto the Washington office of the organization, along with detailed reports on Woody's encounter and his personal background. Typically, the NICAP newsletter later devoted a couple of paragraphs to the Derenberger case, denouncing it as a hoax, misspelling Woody's name, and referring to cold as cold, K-U-L-D. Woody had spelled the name C-O-L-D from the outset, and it was spelled that way throughout the subcommittee's document. How NICAP arrived at the K-U-L-D spelling is a mystery in itself. Really, really swinging for, for so NICAP. So this guy literally just completely, like normal, sidetracks for no reason yeah. to just shit on a couple NICAPs. Yeah. Wow. This is the guy we're talking about. And, and like, this is why I don't feel bad about making fun of him. He's 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 wild. Wes, he, sa Wes. he says some things. Too, remember so. what I highlighted. Uncomfortable. Remember what I highlighted. Yes, I remember. Okay, I do. <laughs> get to it. We're gonna get to it. <clears throat> okay. All right. This is how we're gonna keep reading from essentially the next chapter. Uh, this is how it starts. Okay. I'm not like dropping you guys in the middle of of a, a new situation without explaining things. This is how he writes. Quote, Look at that crazy character coming in downwind in that plane, Eddie Adkins commented. He and four other men were standing on a field on the field at the Galapagos, Ohio airport, just across the river from Point Pleasant on Sunday, December 4th, 1966. At 3 p.m. that afternoon, a large winged form came cruising majestically along the Ohio River, just behind the airport. The pilots later estimated that it was about 300 feet in the air and was traveling about 70 miles an hour. As it drew closer, they realized it was not a plane, but it was some kind of enormous bird with an unusually long neck. It seemed to be turning its head from side to side as if it were taking in the scenery. The wings were not flapping. My God, it's something prehistoric, one of the men cried. Everett Wedge grabbed his camera and sprinted to a small plane, but by the time he was airborne, the giant creature had vanished somewhere Downriver. Okay. <clears throat> Don't read this. You, you're right. I think I do. Sorry. He like that's the end of that story. He then continues on to when he arrives, and okay. Okay. So. All right. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep reading, but. There's a lot of stuff we don't really need to know. Three days later, on December 7th, I arrived in Point Pleasant for the first time. Found a sleepy little town, clean, well-managed, prosperous, blah, 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 blah. The Ohio Valley is a busy industrial area, and the river is lined with chemical factories, and I don't need to know this. Go fuck yourself, John Keel. All right. My first stop was the Mason County Courthouse and a chat with Deputy Halstead, a soft-spoken, serious man with a receding hairline and just a trace of the curse of all small-town policemen, the potbelly. John Keel is going off. 
Why? <laughs> he's really just you roasting see, this, this is guy. Why when I hear girl and 13, I just start shaking uncontrollably. <laughs> I mean, wait, with context, when he's writing about it, hold on. <laughs> wait. You know what I mean? It's yeah, just, yeah. He is a, like, he's a problem. Oh, man. Okay. There's something to it, he assured me. The people who have seen this bird were all mighty scared. They saw something. I don't know what. Some say it's just a crane. I asked him if there had been any flying saucer reports in the area. No, we haven't had any of that. Just the bird. That's enough. He told me how to find the McDaniel home, and I drove out to do the one thing I hated most. Knock on the door of a total stranger, introduce myself as a hotshot writer from New York, and invade the privacy of people already weary from the publicity, reporters, and self-styled okay. investigators. Hotshot writer. Yeah. Okay. So I think he's trying to be self-deprecating there, but anyway. All right, get ready. Mabel McDaniel came to the door. An attractive woman, not at all like the frail, drawn, sparrow-like women I often met up in the hills of Appalachia. <laughs> this guy's a walking HR violation. Good God, it's a good thing he doesn't work for anybody. <laughs> It was early evening, and within an hour, Mabel had made a series of phone calls, and the little house was filled with people. Roger and Linda Scarberry, Steve and Mary Millette, and Connie Carpenter and her fiancé, Keith, and Miss Mary Heyer all arrived. Get ready. My first reaction to Miss Heyer was negative. Every town has a local busybody, and I pegged her as that. Erroneously, it turned out. Connie's eyes were red and swollen, as I have already noted, but she was the only one who had experienced this telltale reaction. She seemed to be an emotionally fragile girl, but down to earth. Roger and Steve, lifelong buddies, talked with great enthusiasm about their great adventure. But I had learned long ago that young men usually tend to color their experiences with rich imagination and heroic posturing. However, there were no false heroics here. They had been genuinely frightened out of their wits and were not ashamed to admit it. Later, Mary Heyer told me that she had heard them recount the episodes dozens of times to innumerable reporters and investigators. Quote, None of them ever changed it or added a word, she noted. Since they had viewed the creature only briefly and in the dark, their descriptions were understandably lacking in significant detail. Even Connie, who had seen the creature in broad daylight, could not describe the thing beyond the fact that it was gray, huge, and flu. Its face, she said, was, quote, science fiction-like. The glowing red eyes had made the biggest impression on her, as they had on the others, and the overriding sense of unreasonable fear was the main reaction. There had been no smells in the areas of the sightings, no footprints or droppings or other tangible evidence. After taping their individual stories, we decided to go out to the TNT area so I could have my first look at the site. At about 9pm, we drove to the old ammunition dump. The police had now locked the old gate leading to the power plant, but it was no problem to squeeze through the fence. The night was dark and overcast, and the rickety building was just a huge black lump on the landscape. We gathered outside the main entrance. The crowds who had swarmed there weeks earlier had given up so that we were alone. Ten people. I carried my powerful six-cell flashlight. To me, this was just another broken, deserted building in a remote spot. I was used to prowling around such places alone in the dark, but I was troubled by the fear that now seemed to be gripping our little expedition. Their nervousness was real. Only Connie and Keith volunteered to enter the building with me. The others clustered outside. Okay. Oh my god, Wes. Okay. The three of us went into the ruin. Connie was joking and in good spirits. Keith was sober and quiet. The interior of the building was filled with debris and silence except for the soft sound of dripping water. Large rustling, rusting boilers stood on the ground floor. I peered into them with my flashlight. 
with my flashlight, sorry. I cannot read. Mothman wasn't hiding there. I climbed the steel ladders and strolled the catwalks. Even the pigeons seemed to have deserted the place. Satisfied that the building was empty, we started for the exit. I preceded the other two there with my flashlight. As she stepped through the door which led into the smaller chamber where the main exit was located, Connie glanced over her shoulder and let out a horrified gasp. Those eyes, she screamed. He's there. She dissolved into total hysteria, crying uncontrollably. The brave, cheerful girl of a moment ago was now a blubbering wreck. Keith and I rushed her outside. I saw those eyes, two big red eyes by the wall in the back, she managed to choke out. While everyone gathered around her and tried to calm her, I turned and rushed back into the building. The wall at the far end of the boiler room was blank. There was nothing there that could have reflected the light from my flashlight. Again, I searched the building from top to bottom and found nothing. When I got back outside, I found a police officer. Deputy Alva Sullivan had joined our group. Like the others, he had been reluctant to enter the building and help me with my search. They were all looking through a fence facing a field that went behind the power plant. We thought we saw something back of the plant, Mary Heyer explained. A tall figure running. Was it you? No, I never left the building. What was that noise while you were in there? Mabel McDaniel asked. What noise? It was metallic and hollow. A loud noise. Like a piece of metal had fallen all the way down from the top or something. Everyone had heard the sound, except me, and I hadn't done anything to make such a noise. Keith led Connie, still crying, to their car. Please, let's get out of here, she begged. I'm bleeding, Mary Millette suddenly exclaimed, cupping her hand to her ear. I flashed my light into her ear. A small trickle of blood was oozing out. Did you hear anything else? I asked. Everyone shook their head. He said his head, but whatever. Goddamn. No, but it doesn't feel right here, does it? Mary Heyer observed. It feels oppressive, heavy. I had to agree with her. Something did seem to be out of whack. Steve Millette led his wife away. Now we had two hysterical women on our hands. That is written oh, no. with an exclamation oh, point. God. <laughs> we were so fine so until then. So fine until then. Uh, how far did, did we get without uh, an insensitive comment? Two pages? Um... Also, I yeah, mean, two I don't pages. mean to be that guy. Heavy, oh, I'm a genius. Heavily convenient that John Keel is the only person with no sort of interaction involving Mothman. Uh, it didn't hear anything, didn't see anything, wasn't around when they saw a dark figure. The only thing I can't explain out of that is the blood. That's weird. Um, yeah, so he does say that uh, that uh, Miss Millette's bleeding ear was a sign of concussion, meaning the air pressure had changed suddenly, is what he hypothesizes. Um he says Connie had a hallucinatory or psychic glimpse of those eyes, and the metallic clang could not have come from within inside the building, or he would have heard it too. He said uh, it may have been associated with a sudden change in air pressure. Uh, he scanned the skies, and there was not a star or a single light visible. So they all filed back to their cars and returned to the McDaniels' home. Mary Millette's ear stopped bleeding. Keith drove a still-shaking Connie Carpenter home, and, being an old-time idiot, I returned to the TNT area for another look. It was well past midnight as I drove aimlessly up and down the dirt roads among the igloos. Mothman did not pop out of the bushes to cry blue, to cry boo, sorry. But I did have one curious experience. Yo. As I passed it, blue! What the fuck? Anyway, as I passed a certain point on one of the isolated roads, I was suddenly engulfed in fear. I stepped on the gas, and after I went a few yards, my fear vanished as quickly as it came. 
I continued to drive, eventually returning again to the same spot. And again, a wave of unspeakable fear swept over me. I drove quickly away from the place and then stopped, puzzled. Why would this one stretch of road produce this hair-raising effect? I turned Dude, around and slowly headed that's back. That's like fucking... I'm so sorry, I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I wasn't sure when you end. Let me know when you end. Okay. I turned around and slowly headed back, trying to note trees, fence posts, and other landmarks in the dark. Once again, when I reached that particular point, the hair tingled on the back of my neck, and I became genuinely afraid. When I emerged from the other side of this invisible zone, I stopped and got out of my car. The air was perfectly still. There wasn't an audible sound, not even a bird call. I was reminded of the hour of quiet that settles inexplicably over the jungle in early morning. Then suddenly, usually around 2 a.m., all of the animals, birds, even the insects become totally silent for about two hours. If you're not used to the jungle and its ways, this sudden silence can wake you from a deep, deep sleep. I walked back to the zone of fear slowly, alert for any rustle of bushes, measuring my own breathing and emotions. I was perfectly calm until I took one step too many and was back in the zone. I almost panicked and ran, but I forced myself to look around and proceed slowly. By now I had figured out that I was probably walking through a beam of ultrasonic waves and really had nothing to be afraid of. So I'm, I'm not really sure where he gets this idea from. That literally was of... what I was stopping to ask. It, like That immediately sounded like ultrasound to me. Or, yeah, um, so yeah. ultrasound has had that documented effect of producing a feeling of fear in people. But, um... Or not ultra infrasound. Infrasound, infrasound or ultrasound. Um, yeah, yeah. Because they use that shit making horror movies um, because you can't hear it, but yeah. it's there and it causes that panic. So I'm like, that sounds exactly what I'm thinking. If it's a, like almost like a literal zone, like there's a... Imagine like a river of infrasound yeah. kind of snaking through the, the I mean, woods. I mean, it's not a sound it's a wave. Whatever, it. yeah. No, I get what you're saying. I know, but visually, Jake, vi come on, help me out here. What? Visually and what actually happens according to the laws of physics are not the same, Wes. You know what is the same, though, Wes? How you get no bitches. What? Anyway. Um, so... He he does say that, like, he, he notes where the location was, but like, I'll come back later. Uh, and, and he walks walks back through it. But uh, in in daylight, he returned to the same spot, and the zone of fear was, was gone. He searched for power transmission lines, telephone microwave towers, and anything that might have radiated energy throughout the area, and there was nothing. Nor did a daytime exploration of the power plant reveal anything Connie might have mistaken for red eyes. So... This is when he becomes convinced that there were, like, UFO phenomena in the area. Um, but we're not going we're, we're to go any further. With Has that anybody just considered that maybe this, maybe this guy's just fucking wrong? Like, when he goes out to investigate, what if he's just an idiot and there's a clear explanation, but he doesn't see it? Does he never? He never has like a second party to help him out or something, you know, like a, a third party so corroboration throughout all this have, shit. He does have like several experiences with UFO type stuff, where like Mary Hire is with him, or at least he says she's with him because she does die. She did die before the book was published. However, oh, for one oh, of the occasions, okay. I thought you were gonna say during the book. I'm like, what the fuck no, is this no, no, plot no, no, twist? No, 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 no. Uh, for one of the occasions, he actually got her to sign an affidavit saying that she saw what he alleges she saw. 
which I don't think I. That's that's pretty. That's pretty legit, Jake. Um, I mean, not really. I mean, I I, I would not put it. Past there was sarcasm in my voice, Jake. Yep. Anyway, so meanwhile, Woody Derenberger was entertaining interesting visitors at Mineral Wells. A man identifying himself as Captain Bruce Parsons of the NASA Security Police at Cocoa Beach, Florida, called on him and invited him to Cape Kennedy, home of our space program. Shortly after Christmas, Woody, his wife, and children flew to Cape Kennedy to spend a week with Captain Parsons. By day, they toured the great rocket launching installation. But each evening, Woody was taken to a room somewhere on the Cape where he was questioned for hours, covering every detail of his visits with injured cold. One of his questioners was a man identified as the head of NASA and called simply Charlie. According to Woody, at the end of the week, his interrogators showed him a star map and pointed to a speck on it, telling Jake. him, quote, that's where they're from. What's up? I'm sorry. You, like, there was a very long silence. I got worried that something froze, so I just, I missed, like, the past probably oh, okay. 30 okay. seconds of what you were saying. Well, I already read it for the readers, so he was basically getting interrogated by NASA scientists. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I heard that much. Okay. So, according to Woody, at the end of the week, his interrogator showed him a star map and pointed to a speck on it, telling him, quote, that's where they're from. They said they had interviewed several other contactees, all with stories similar to his own. When he asked why they didn't release their UFO information to the public, they allegedly replied that it would only cause panic. Women would commit suicide, throw babies out the window, and this kind of panic would sweep the world, they said. What? I'm sorry. Am I missing something, Jake? Is this like, did the 60s become a time warp? Like, what the fuck is happening? Breed, we're not even into the breed. men in black shit. What is this is the world Andrew on? Tate wants to bring us back to. No, I'm not oh saying that it's God. a good thing, because obviously fuck Andrew Tate, he's an asshole. I'm trying to, it was meant to be like a... Oh, hold on, Jake. You Wait until you have... Watch some of these videos I'll send you, then tell me he's <laughs> Thank an you, Wes. You mean the ones with, like, the, <laughs> the like, pop music playing over them while while like sigma male motivational messages are said by the lo yes. the biggest loser in the world andrew tate no 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 it's the ones where he he's telling you how to be successful by abandoning the patriarchy throwing women to the side because they're less than us jake that one like duh <coughs> right anyway uh so <laughs> Derenberger brought home a flock of souvenirs as proof of his trip photographs, and even a scrap of the material used in our astronauts' spacesuits. This, Woody says, is the same kind of reflective material worn by Indrid Cold under his coat on that rainy November evening. Whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, whoa, hold on. He's implying that Indrid Cold had fabric on his body that we used in space exploration. So... Yes. John Keel also claims later that he finds footprints that look like exactly like the footprints that astronauts left on the moon. As in like he'll like he'll describe like these wavy footprints and he'll be like, oh yeah, they're exactly like the one they're literally exactly like the astronaut footprints on the moon. 
And he'll be like, so clearly they're buying their ship from the same place our astronauts are. I think he means it as like a as a joke, but still like that's not. No, you're fine. So there's a there's a garbage truck outside, and I didn't know what was happening. There was just a low rumble like outside the window, and I was getting real freaked out. And I heard the beeping. We're good. Holy shit! <laughs> Why is it? Why is it that only when we're recording something freaky like that happens? Oh my god. It's Jake. It's silent outside now. Okay, got it. It's silent outside now. Well, Wes, that I don't does think, happen. I don't. I don't think I heard it driving away. Oh, the the truck. Yeah, sorry, I haven't been paying any attention to that. <laughs> Thanks, just, Jake. Thanks. Dude, I'm, I'm trying worried to about figure out my notes. I'm okay. garbage man, and you're over here fucking what? Sitting on on Instagram, looking up Andrew Tate videos. I know. I'm checking my notes, you fucking asshole. God, don't don't suggest that I'm an Andrew Tate fan. What's wrong with you? I'm not suggesting. I'm just implying you might pick up on some of his uh, messages, you know? Okay. I mean, in fairness, you're not a 14-year-old boy. You're not really his target audience, but... No. No, I'm not. It's really sad. It's really like imagine being that like pathetic that you're like Andrew Tate. I want to hear John Keel describe Andrew Tate like he would any of these people. Just out of the blue. Just do you know he'd look at Andrew Tate and and start like describing him analytically, but like very racially focused? You know? Oh yeah, he would. He would. He totally would. And then he'd, he, but he'd use that special N word that he has in this book all the time. That he has eight versions of in the fucking book. Eight, per, eight versions, literally eight versions. Okay, all right. So, meanwhile, uh, on January eleventh, nineteen sixty-seven, Mrs. Mabel McDaniel was walking near the drive-in restaurant, Tiny's Restaurant in Point Pleasant, at about five p.m. when she saw an object soaring down Route sixty-two. Quote. I thought it was an airplane. Then I realized it was flying much too low, she said. She had been living with Mothman witnesses for two months, but never expected to see the critter herself, nor did she want to, knowing that she was psychologically prepared to, maybe, even hallucinate a sighting. I interviewed her very carefully afterward. Her story held up. This was a real sighting. He never explains how he comes to that conclusion, but whatever. She froze in her tracks, scarcely (laughs) believing her eyes. I thought I could see two legs, like men's legs, hanging down from it. It circled low over Tiny's and then flew off. She could not see any head or neck. The wings were motionless, and it was completely silent. In a way, it sounded almost like a hang glider, but hang gliding was almost completely unknown sport in 1967. (coughs) Mrs. McDaniel was nervous and excited afterward, but suffered no ill effects. Next, we get to Tad Jones. Enter Tad Jones, a rarity among UFO witnesses because of his very common name. At least that's what John Keel writes. I don't understand what make how that makes him rare. Like, like he, he's. I guess he's insinuating that every like UFO witness has a weird name. Was he listening to me right now? I'm. I'm somewhat paying attention. 
What are you doing? What are you doing on your phone? I'm not on my phone. Why are you asking if I'm on my phone? Because you're on your phone. I'm not. <laughs> okay. All right. Whatever. Anyway. He's just, he's got some good videos, Jake. What do you want me to say? God damn it. it. Like, it's, it's interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> All right. A gentle, handsome man in his 30s, Mr. Jones was a deeply religious person who did not smoke or drink. In 1967, he lived in Dunbar, a suburb of Charleston, West Virginia, and managed an appliance store at a place called Cross Lanes. Cross Lanes. Urbane. No, sorry. At a place called Cross Lanes. Urbane, intelligent, and articulate, he was one of the most impressive UFO witnesses I have met in my travels. At 9.05 a.m. on the morning of January 19, 1967, Ted was driving to his store along the newly completed multi-lane highway, Route 64, about 10 miles outside of Charleston. A large object was blocking the road ahead of him, and he first assumed it was a vehicle being used by a construction gang still working on the highway. But as he drew closer, he saw that it was hovering in the air, about four feet off the ground. It was a large metal sphere, he said. Since it was broad daylight, I got a very good look at it. It was about 30 feet in diameter and was the color of dull aluminum. He slowed his car and studied the thing for about two minutes. Quote, There were four legs attached to it, he continued, with caster-like wheels on the bottom of each one, and there was a small window about nine inches in diameter on the side facing me, but I couldn't see anything inside the sphere. On the, other, on the underside, there was something like a propeller. It was idling when I first drove up. Then it started spinning faster and the whole object began to rise upward. It disappeared into the sky, and I drove on to my store. Shaken and puzzled by his sighting, he decided to call the police and report it. His story quickly found its way into the local papers. The next morning, a crude note was slipped under his door in Dunbar. Written in, on ordinary notebook paper in block letters, it stated, We know what you have seen, and we know that you have talked. You'd better keep your mouth shut. He decided it had to be the work of some local prankster. In nearby St. Albans, Mr. Ralph Jarrett, a chemical engineer and the local UFO authority, was shaving that morning when his telephone rang. He put down his razor and went into the bedroom to pick up the extension. I heard a very clear beep-beep sound, Jarrett said. The beeping continued for about two, maybe three minutes. Then the phone went dead and the dial tone came on. I've heard all sorts of code transmissions on shortwave, but nothing quite like that. He went downstairs to breakfast opened his copy of the Charleston Gazette, and read about Tad Jones' sighting, the first he had heard of it. Jarrett, an aggressive, loquacious middle-aged man, was a highly qualified investigator. Loquacious would be my stripper name, by the way, if I ever did strip. Stop. He later Stop. contacted Jones and conducted a thorough study of the case. He discovered the object had been hovering directly above a major gas line which passed under the road. There have been other sightings of UFOs directly above buried gas lines. A few days later, another note was slipped under the door of Jones's home in Dunbar. This one was written on a piece of cardboard which had been burned around the edges. It repeated the earlier threat, adding, there won't be another warning. Okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah, so... John Keel arrives and asks him about any other sightings, and apparently... Um, Ted Jones did see like a a man who was wearing like a blue coat and a blue cap with a visor, kind of like a uniform, and then he was holding like a box in his hand. And this was like a week later, he was driving down like the oh. same stretch of highway. And he saw this man on oh, the shit. side of the road right where he had seen the object. Uh and he asked the man, he was like, 
want to lift? And the man did not reply, but merely waved him on. And then the next morning, the same man was in the same place. But this time, Tad was like, fuck it, I'm not going to slow down. So, Tad described so, this man okay. as... Are we, are we talking about him yet? Are we not talking yet. about him yet? Not yet. Damn it. He was very tanned, Jones recalled, <sighs> or his face was very flushed. He looked normal and was wearing a blue coat and a blue cap with a visor. Something like a uniform, I guess. I noticed he was holding a box in his hand. Some kind of instrument. It had a large dial on it, like a clock, and a wire ran from it to his other hand. So, John Keel asked, like, asked the local gas companies if there was anyone in the area at the time, and they're like, no. He asked about, like, any any type of instrument, like, what the guy was using, and they're like, no, you fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. So, um... So him and Miss Hire visited the spot on Route 64, where they found a series of very strange footprints in the mud beside the road. One group of footprints were identical to those I had found behind the power plant in the TNT area the previous December. They looked like huge dog tracks and were so deep, the animal who made them must have weighed 200 pounds or more. I couldn't relate them to Mothman, and there were lots of dogs in the area, so I didn't think much about them at the time. Tad made plaster casts of these. Okay, 200-pound dogs? Well, John Keel's kind of an idiot. Um, so I didn't think much about that. Yeah, I, I figured that one out. Tad made plaster casts of these new prints, I, I, however, I and none of the I'm local sorry. wildlife authorities could identify them. They were not dog tracks. Sorry, you were saying? I really, I want nothing more than to hear John Keel's description of what the fuck those dogs would look like. <laughs> Zoologist I, Ivan Sanderson what? later rejected the big dog explanation. Also and told me similar tracks frequently turned up in places where paranormal events had occurred. And, in fact, I have since come across them myself in several separate spots across the country. Sorry, you were saying? No, I just, I I can't get past that dog thing. That's the stupidest he's, thing he's I've so ever dumb. fucking heard. How do you yeah. say that it has to be at least two hundred? What is it? What was it? The Hound of the, Hound of the Baskervilles? Hound of the Baskervilles? Was that it? Yeah. The... yeah. The Sherlock Holmes book? Yeah, Isn't yeah. that the one with, like, the big-ass dog? Well, yeah. Is that is that what he expects here? Oh, God. I, mean, I, I don't know. Like, this guy, sometimes his quote-unquote investigating makes, like, logical sense to me. And I feel like he's doing it right. Like, with the, the infrasound or ultrasound where he got out and kind of kept going back and forth. But then he's like, maybe... Uh, it has to be at least 200 pounds. Maybe it's a dog. Are you like, <laughs> what? And we're not even going so on also, like, how he describes things. Jeez, well, yeah. What, he also what mentions that he sound a single footprint of what appeared to be a large naked human foot. And it was planted in the center of a muddy section with no other footprints of any kind around it. Then... A short distance away, he came across some footprints that looked exactly like the ones on the moon. Like the, the, the astronauts who went to the moon wore those shoes. Like a big-ass boot. Like a, a, rid, a ridged boot, yeah. Okay, but yeah, like a, like, like a boot, right? Hold on, I gotta look. At, like <laughs> a boot, right? <laughs> like a space boot. They're not the same. Are you sure? I'm not sure. I just took, I guess I just took John Kill's word for it. Uh, I mean, they're big. They're larger. Wes, do you want to... 
They're, they're just big about... flat boots. You know, it could be like what just came up. Also, it could be these big ass sixteen-inch leather heels. They're flat and ridged. Wait, what? Bro, what are you seeing? I was just. I went to Google Images. I looked up moon boots. I mean, or space boots. I looked up space boots. Here, hold on. I'll but they're just big circular boots. I'll send you a picture. You can't just. I. I. I'm not gonna send you a picture. You know what space? No, I'm sending like, you a picture. Right? Just a like that. Oh. Hold on. Like what? How do I look at this, Jake? What, dude? How do you not know how to use Discord? Like Jesus Christ! Oh, here Christ. we go. Here we go. <coughs> I just okay. That you know what that looks like to me, Jake. Now what? that I think about it, a fucking boot. What? What? It's a. All right. It's, it's Wes, a, you've what? sidetracked us. What? You you sidetracked us enough. I feel right? like I'm sidetracked <laughs> for the right reasons, though. Like that's a boot. The other one is obviously not. Wes, a dog. The more you do this, the less time we have for Men in Black. Uh, how how far in are we? We are about fifty-seven minutes in. An hour. Ooh. in. Sorry. Alternative, I stretch our time further, and we make Men in Black its own episode. There's really not enough Men in Black to do its own episode. Fuck. All right. Let's just. We'll just have to do an extra long episode. All right. Um, fine. So, do you want to, Wes? Do you want to go over an unnamed young couple who were? doing coupling in a in a car in some isolated back hills who saw He's... a ufo and then lost two hours of their life fuck no that sounds boring as shit is it but no, wait is it like through, through the narrative oh, i was gonna say because if it's through the narration of john keel who knows but no it... that that just sounds like i look i don't mean to to take away from the ufo aspect but i feel <laughs> like a lot of times when especially john keel talking about ufos you're not like there's not a lot of meat to that you're just no, saying they just sold this, they sold this. Like, it's like it's like when someone like it's like when you run out of soap and you're too lazy to go buy more soaps you just fill the thing up with water and you're like it's fine <laughs> what's in the bottom will mix and it'll make new soap unlimited soap and then you you press down and it just squirts all over your fucking shirt because it's just all watery and no <laughs> substance that's that's what john keel's writing is Admit it, Wes. I just came up with a perfect analogy for that. That was a pretty good analogy, Jake. That was. Uh, we can move on now. Okay. So real quick, these young lovers, they when they they saw this like bluish light, it flashed a light at them and it sunburned them from head to toe. Holy shit! Yeah, and they they had no way to explain it to everyone around them, so they didn't tell anyone. Or at least, sorry, they didn't tell anyone how it happened. Okay. I mean, it, it, no, that's not the real story. These two fucking, they were, they were having uh, uh, relations outside of the car, headbutted, knocked each other out cold, woke up, were sunburnt to shit because they were fucking naked, and then had no other way to explain it. So they came up with a UFO story because that is far easier to explain than, oh, yeah, we were doing the, the cunnilingus on top of the car, <laughs> and, you know, Ted slipped and headbutted me square in the jaw, and we both fell off. <laughs> Unconscious. <laughs> Just sounds realistic to me. 
<laughs> okay, I should mention the, the boy's eyes were almost swollen shut for two weeks afterward. Holy, well, okay, so I, I was wrong. She was on top, came down with the macho man <laughs> elbow on that motherfucker. God damn. Oh my god, Lord, dude. She's got one of the horrors on her face. I'm not and having just a good straight time. Down on I tried to drown you out. <laughs> my headache is back. Or counter, counter, counter. Uh, West, please. Story. In fact,. It was not each other that knocked ourselves. It was the 200-pound dog that caught up with them. Oh, my God. And as he was trying to fight the dog off, because it's 200 pounds, it's obviously six foot seven, and, and it's, it's fucking 30-pound nutsack slapped her in the face. Oh, my he, God. He was knocked unconscious, and his girlfriend tried to help Please, please stop <laughs> describing it in graphic detail. Holy shit. Holy shit. <laughs> Oh my god. I hate you so much. <laughs> okay, can we I'm just move on? We're almost a minute like black. Works better. Wes, we're almost a minute black. Just fine. stick with me. Fine. Fine. Alright. So Keel notes that during the Mothman craze and in the following years, many animals in the area went missing or were found dead or mutilated, and that there were many rumors of a cult going on goings on. Okay. I just gotta go to page 59. It's okay. Do I have to go back to our 200 pound dog theory? Wes, I swear to God. Please. <laughs> okay. In March 1967, a truly astonishing UFO, quote, attack took place in West Virginia, apparently supporting the vampiric theories I was entertaining at the time. While many other UFO investigators had been collecting endless descriptions of things seen in the sky, I was out examining dead animals in remote fields, pondering the real meaning behind the bloodless carcasses. On the night of March 5th, a Red Cross bloodmobile was traveling along Route 2, which runs parallel to the Ohio River. Bo Scherzer, 21, and a young nurse had been out all day collecting human blood, and now they were heading back to Huntington, West Virginia, with a van filled with fresh blood. The road was dark and cold, and there was very little traffic. As they moved along a particularly deserted stretch, there was a flash in the woods on a nearby hill, and a large white glow appeared. It rose slowly in the air and flew straight for their vehicle. My God, what is it? The nurse cried. I'm not going to stick around to find out, Scherzer answered, pushing his foot down on the gas. The object effortlessly swooped over the van and stayed with it. Scherzer rolled down his window and looked up. He was horrified to see some kind of arm or extension being lowered from the luminous thing, cruising, cruising only a few feet above the bloodmobile. It's trying to get us, the nurse yelled. The nurse yelled, sorry, watching another arm reach down on her side. It looked as if the flying object was trying to wrap a pincers-like device around the vehicle. Scherzer poured on the horses, but the object kept pace with them easily. Apparently, they were saved by the sudden appearance of headlights from approaching traffic. As the other cars neared, the object retracted its arms and hastily flew off. Both young people rushed to the police in a state of hysteria. The incident was mentioned briefly on a radio newscast that night, but was not picked up by the, by the newspapers. In cases like these, we have to ask, did the UFO really intend to carry off the bloodmobile, or was it all a sham to prove the UFO's interest in blood? Later, I tried to check to find out if any bloodmobiles had actually vanished anywhere. The Red Cross thought I was a bit nuts. No shit. But I found myself seriously wondering if we only hear about the people who get away. Okay. Wes, you ready for the last one we're going to talk about? Because the rest of these are pretty annoying. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> okay. 
Mrs. Virginia Thomas was working in her kitchen deep inside the TNT area when she heard a loud squeaking sound unlike anything she had heard before in her years there. The best way I can describe it, she told Mrs. Hire and me, is that it was like a bad fan belt, but much louder. I stepped, out, I stepped outside. It seemed to be coming from one of the igloos. Then I saw a huge shadow spreading across the grass. It was just afternoon, so there shouldn't have been any shadow like that. Then this figure appeared. It walked erect like a man, but it was all gray, and it was much bigger than any man I ever saw. It moved very fast across the field and disappeared into the trees. It didn't seem to be walking, exactly. It was almost gliding, faster than any man could run. It was the hunting season, so I knew it wasn't a hunter. No hunter in his right mind would dress in gray. Everything here, around here, they all wear red coats and red caps. And it wasn't a bear or anything like that. It really scared me. Uh, so, she also mentions that she had been plagued by bad dreams. Um, and... And then he mentions in this chapter that he showed up... Uh, he showed up in, in Point Pleasant and talked to Miss Hire. And she was like, hey, I had a nightmare that there were a lot of people drowning in the river and Christmas packages were floating everywhere in the water. Um, okay, and, yeah, that, that part's freaky shit. Yeah, and he's like, well, maybe you're just picking up on my thoughts because he thought he was he had been hearing some stuff from contactees at this time. Um, Yeah, so they they briefly talk, and he doesn't reveal any of this information. But uh, on December fourteenth, nineteen. Yes. Okay. Thirteen months to the day. November 15th, 1966 to December 15th, 1967, the year of the Garuda came to an end. Like some evil specter of death, Mothman and the UFOs had focused national attention on quiet little Point Pleasant and lured scores of reporters and investigators like myself to the Ohio River Valley. When the Silver Bridge died of old age, many of these same reporters returned once again to the village to revisit old friends and to share the pain of that tragic Christmas. Wherever you were, you watched the agonized aftermath on national television and read about Point Pleasant on the front pages of your local newspaper. So, the the bridge collapsed, and yep. a lot of people died. Uh, I don't know if I... Is there... See, this is why I made the jokes when I could, Jake, because this shit ain't funny. It's sad. It is very astonishing, though. You have more than one individual kind of backs up the claims that people were like dreaming about it or I don't want to say visions. I mean, he but says like, they were the idea that, yeah, the idea that people like kind of having visions of this way before it even happened. <clears throat> okay. Not saying so it's were, true. I'm just saying it's interesting. There were 38 bodies recovered and several other people in Ohio and West Virginia, who were never heard from again, and it was assumed they also went down. The okay, bridge. did we did, did, did we really have to? Oh, okay, we um, didn't need those. But yeah, that was like a tragic That's event, bad. and people started to think that maybe Mothman was like an, a bad omen. He was he was warning them. But that's depressing as shit. So Wes, you want to talk about Men in Black? Okay, so 
you literally dropped that like real quick. Okay, by the way, a bunch of people died. Man, black time. Like, okay, if you want to do that, if you want to do that. Okay, you ready? Sure. I mean, this one. What? Okay, this this one. What? what? This one's New Jersey, so let's not let's not talk about it. Oh my god, you're gonna discredit it because it's across the river. Wes, do you know where New Jersey is compared to West Virginia? Oh, I forgot it took place in West Virginia. You said New York earlier, so for some reason I was thinking New York. Uh Never no, mind. no no no. I was no. wrong. No, no, no. I'm not I'm not really talking about anything that happened in New York either. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. It doesn't matter. Let's uh let's Page move 15. on. All right. Connie Carpenter's sighting of Mothman in November 1966 triggered off a long series of weird situations. She heard loud beeping sounds outside her bedroom window on several occasions. Then, in February 1967, someone tried to abduct her. Early that month, she and Keith Gordon oh, were married, God. and they moved across the river to a house in Middleport, Ohio. They did not have a phone, and their new address was known only to their families and close friends. Middleport is a town of about 3,000 people. Prepare yourself, Wes. Connie was still attending just, school. Just say it. An excessively slender girl, she would never win a Raquel Welch look-alike contest. Just pull up Raquel Welch real quick. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? So I can't tell. Oh my tell god, did he say she's still in school? Uh, she, well, she, yeah. Hold on, Wes, let me send you what, what Raquel what, Welch what? looked like on, at the talking. time. We're talking college, right? Dude, I don't know. It's probably senior year high school. I though. really hope so. It's probably senior year uh, high Alright, so this is what Raquel Welsh looks like. So I can't tell. I have no idea. But he's either calling Raquel Welsh oh fat or Connie Carpenter ugly. No, no, no. She was No, because she was the like the attractive like because remember Shawshank, she's the yeah. poster girl. Yeah. Yeah. So either no, she's he just thinks, calling uh, like, Connie unattractive. <laughs> like, what a dick, For right? For no reason. <laughs> He's just an asshole. Remember, is this is a story about her getting kidnapped. Oh, yeah. Dude, I legitimately forgot that part. Until yeah. You said that. Dude. Okay. What the fuck? At 8.15 anyway. a.m. on February 22nd, 1967, she started out for school. Keith was already at work. As she began walking down the quiet tree-lined street, a large black car pulled off alongside. Since all young people are automobile conscious, apparently, she said she could positively identify it as a 1949 Buick. The driver opened his car and called to her, asking for directions. So she walked over to his car. Apparently, stranger danger was not a thing at this point, but whatever. Yeah, this is the fucking 60s, dude. He was a clean-cut young man of about 25, she said later, and was wearing a colorful mod shirt, no jacket, despite the cold weather. His thick black hair was neatly combed, and he appeared to be very suntanned. He spoke with no noticeable accent. The car, though nearly 20 years old, was so well-kept it looked like new. Even the interior had a look of newness about it. When she reached the vehicle, the young man suddenly lunged, grabbed her arm, and ordered her to get in with her. With him, sorry. After a brief struggle, she managed. <coughs> she ma- <coughs> I'm so sorry, I just broke out the coughs. After a brief struggle, she managed to break away. She ran back to her house and locked herself in, completely terrified. 
She cowered in the house until her husband came home from work, and she decided to stay home the next day, too. At 3 p.m., she heard someone on the porch, and there was a loud knock on the door. She waited a while, then cautiously went to the door. There was no one on the porch and no car in sight, but a note had been slipped under the door. It was written in pencil in block letters on a piece of ordinary notebook paper. Paper, sorry. Be careful, girl, it read. I can get you yet. So that night, Connie and Keith went to the local police. The note was turned over to Officer Raymond Manley. On March 1967, John Keel visited the police station, hoping to recover the note so he could compare the handwriting with other notes he had collected. Manley had lost it somewhere along the way. When he asked to see their file on the case, they produced a printed form containing Connie's name and address and one scribbled line, Dark Buick, Young Man. The police chief assured him that no such car existed in Middleport and that it was obviously a case of some maniac trying to abduct a young girl, which apparently they're fine with, or whatever. Um, Officer Manley told yeah, him... Come on, dude. Was... It's just a young girl. She, it's not like she looks like uh, Raquel. She doesn't look like Raquel Wells. She, I mean, she's... Let's be honest, Wes. If they get the ugly ones, they're kind of doing us a favor. Um. <laughs> okay. okay, so you have just drawn the line that I now have to cross next. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, you do. <laughs> okay. Uh, and apparently the police also didn't know that uh, Keith and Connie moved back across the, to the West Virginia side of the river shortly after the incident. Um, I don't blame them. What the fuck is wrong with people? Jesus. So, what's next? Okay, so at one point in 1967, there were so many unusual-looking people in town. John Keel was like, is there a convention in town? But he was he later convinced himself that they were all government agents because they were all, like, sharply dressed and looked very awkward, like, out of place. So he's like... the. Like, the Air Force or somebody was investigating Point Pleasant at this time and sent a bunch of agents at once. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The Andrew Tate fans arrived. Yes, 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 yes. So, summer of 1967. Aha! Oh, my God, Wes. We're going to get some good shit here. <clears throat> All right. Max's Kansas City is a famous watering hole for New York's hip crowd. I'm only looting this one because of how fucking good the story is. In the summer of 1967, an okay. oddball character wandered into that restaurant, noted for its oddball clientele. He was tall and awkward, dressed in an ill-fitting black suit that seemed out of style. His chin came to a sharp point, and his eyes bulged slightly like thyroid eyes. Those are in quotes. He sat down in a booth and gestured to the waitress with his long, tapering fingers. Something to eat, he mumbled. The waitress handed him a menu. He stared at it uncomprehendingly, apparently unable to read. Food, he said almost pleadingly. How about a steak, she offered. Good. She brought him a steak with all the trimmings. He stared at it for a long moment and then picked up his knife and fork, glancing around at the other diners. It was obvious he did not know how to handle the implements. The waitress watched him as he fumbled helplessly. Finally, she showed him how to cut the steak and spear it with the fork. He sawed away at the meat. Clearly, he really was hungry. Where are you from? She asked gently. Not from here. Where? Another world. <laughs> Boy, another put-on artist, she thought to herself. The other waitresses gathered in a corner and watched him as he fumbled with his food. A stranger in a strange land. <laughs> okay. <coughs> 
moving on right to the next chapter because this is this is not a good one. I mean, that's almost as embarrassing as like someone who's lived here for like I don't know, eighteen years or so, not knowing how to eat a steak. This is the part where I mentioned that you at the age of eighteen, I I did not know how to eat a steak. I still don't actually. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't. How do you do... not know, Jay? Cut it with a with a knife and eat it with a fork. Yeah, but what do you cut? I ended up so when I, last time I ate a steak, I I just like I cut all of the edges off, so it was just like one circle of meat that was like really small, and then I ate it, and that was that was my steak experience, and everyone was looking at me like I was fucking crazy because I don't know how to eat a steak. <laughs> okay, I I apologize. I. Couldn't understand how the fuck you ate a steak wrong, and now I get it. All right. Yeah. Please continue. A large white car with a faulty muffler wheezed and rattled up the back street in New Haven, West Virginia, where Connie Carpenter lived, and Jack Brown knocked at her door. I'm a... a friend of Mary Hires. His strange demeanor and disjointed questions distressed her and disturbed her husband Keith and her brother Larry. It quickly became obvious that he was not particularly interested in Connie's sighting of the man-bird the year before. He seemed mainly concerned with Mrs. Hire and my own relationship with her. In parentheses, we were professional friends, nothing more. Yeah, John, you didn't have to tell us that. None of us think you've got game, man. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Whoa. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that, John. John Keel out here like he's got all the game, as if he hasn't, like, insulted every woman in this book. <coughs> <laughs> I mean, I just called her a slut and they flocked to me. I mean, I said she wasn't as hot as Raquel and now everyone's losing their mind. <laughs> I don't understand. What did I say wrong? What? I mean, I, why are you booing me? I'm right. <laughs> why are you booing me? I'm right. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. What do you think if... What would Mary Hire do if someone told her to stop writing about UFOs? He asked. She'd probably tell them to drop dead, Connie replied. Most of his questions were stupid, even unintelligible. After a rambling conversation, he drove off into the night in his noisy car. Connie called her aunt immediately, puzzled and upset by the visit. He was such a very odd man, she noted, and he wouldn't speak at all if you weren't looking directly into his dark, hypnotic eyes. Connie, Keith, and Larry not only noticed his long-fingered hands, but there was also something very peculiar about his ears. They couldn't exactly say what there was something. <clears throat> they were probably like halfway down his head where they should be. Like imagine his ears are like right above his jawline. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, okay. just descri- I'm just describing where ears actually are on the body. I don't mean to side I don't mean to sidetrack again, but I have a actual issue with the way he phrases those like they couldn't tell what it's it just feels like cheap dramatic effect to me it it keeps irritating the shit out of me all right wes you ready ready for another man in black story am i i guess so quote did you ever hear of anyone especially an air force officer trying to drink jello mrs ralph butler of owatonna minnesota asked well that's what he did he acted like he had never seen any before. He picked up the bowl and tried to drink it. I had to show him how to eat it with a spoon. 
Mrs. Butler was describing the man who had visited her in May 1967, following a flurry of UFO sightings in Owatonna. He said he was Major Richard French of the U.S. Air Force, although he was dressed in civilian clothes and was driving a white Mustang. His neat gray suit and everything else he was wearing appeared to be brand new. Even the soles of his shoes were unscuffed, unwalked upon. He was about five feet nine inches tall, with an olive complexion and a pointed face. His hair was dark and very long, too long for an Air Force officer, Mrs. Butler thought. Unlike Jack Brown, Major French was a fluid concert... concert conversationalist conversationalist yep and seemed perfectly normal until he complained about his stomach bothering him <coughs> when mrs butler offered him the jello she suspected for the first time that something was off kilter richard french was an imposter one of the many wandering around the united states in 1967 for years these characters had caused acute paranoia among the flying saucer enthusiasts convincing them that the Air Force was investigating them, silencing witnesses, and indulging in all kinds of unsavory activities, including murder. When I first began collecting such reports, I was naturally suspicious of the people making such reports. It all seemed like a massive put-on, but gradually it became apparent that the same minute details were turning up in widely separated cases, and none of these details had been published anywhere, not even the little newsletters of the UFO cultists. There was something out there, all right. A few, like Richard French, almost pulled off their capers without drawing attention to themselves. But in nearly every case, there was always some small error, some slip of dress or behavior which the witnesses were usually willing to overlook, but which stood out like signal flares to me. They often arrived in old model cars which were as shiny and as well-kept as brand new vehicles. Sometimes they slipped up in their dress, wearing clothes that were out of fashion, or, even more perturbing, would not come into fashion until years later. Those who posed as military officers obviously had no knowledge of military procedure or basic military jargon. If they had occasion to pull out a wallet or notebook, it would look brand new, although most men carry beat-up old wallets and notebooks quickly gain a worn look. Finally, like the fairies of old, they often collected souvenirs from the witnesses, delightedly walking away with an old magazine, pen, or other small expendable object. What troubled me most was the fact that these mystery men and women often matched the descriptions given to me by contactees who claimed to have seen a UFO land and had glimpsed or conversed with their pilots. Pilots with either pointed features or countenances, dusky skin, and unusually long fingers. So I, I purposely did not say a couple words there. Yeah, yeah. Basically what he's saying is they have pointed features or they look Asian, but... Dus dusky skin, not black, just like darker skin. But instead of saying that, he decides to be like a eugenist about it, and it's just like, ah. okay. So some words you probably shouldn't be saying. Yeah. Well. Okay. You ready? We're going. We're just jumping into uh, one. Another. Sure. Linda Scarberry came home from okay. the hospital on December twenty sixth. 23rd, 1967, bringing with her Daniela Leah Scarberry, her brand new daughter. She and her husband, Roger, lived in the basement apartment at the home of her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Park McDaniel. It was a modest but comfortable home, and like Mary Heyer's office, had been the focal point for strangers ever since Linda, Roger, and another couple had seen The Bird, the preposterous winged man of Point Pleasant, the year before. Now there was a steady flow of friends and neighbors stopping by to look at the new baby one of the few joyous occasions that bleak uh, December. 
When Jack Brown's noisy white car pulled into the McDaniel driveway, he was welcomed as so many reporters, monster hunters, and UFO researchers had been before him. He announced himself as a friend of Mary Heyer, Gray Barker, and John Keel, and entered the house holding a large tape recorder which he set up on the kitchen table. It became immediately obvious that he was unfamiliar with the machine and didn't know how to thread or operate it. The McDaniel family was used to reporters and tape recorders and answering the same tiresome questions. But Brown's questions were not just tiresome. They were vague, detached, and unintelligent. He obviously knew nothing whatsoever about the complex subject of flying saucers, and he was totally disinterested in the legendary bird. His main interest seemed to be me, my present whereabouts, and the nature of my relationship with Mrs. Heyer. Not surprisingly, he asked the McDaniels how they thought Ms. Mary Heyer would react if someone ordered her to stop reporting flying saucer sightings. Friends and neighbors dropped by all evening to view the new baby. Although the baby was the center of all attention, Brown totally ignored the child, not even bothering to show polite interest. When Tom C., a next-door neighbor, was introduced, Brown extended his thumb and two forefingers for a handshake. He said he was from Cambridge, Ohio, a small town just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Later, a reporter from Columbus, Ohio, Dispatch, arrived, and in the course of their casual conversation, it became apparent that Brown had never heard of the Dispatch, one of the state's largest newspapers, and, in fact, did not even know where Cambridge was. His general demeanor made everyone uncomfortable. His inability to converse intelligently and his hypnotic piercing gaze bothered everyone. Despite the growing coolness, he lingered for five hours, leaving at 11 p.m., Early in the evening, he denied knowing me personally. Later on, he said he and I were good friends. He seemed surprised that I had not rushed back to Point Pleasant after the bridge disaster. Perhaps he expected to find me there. Among other things, he said, quote, Gray Barker told me that a UFO had been seen over the Silver Bridge just before it collapsed. Later, when I spoke to Barker about this incident, he denied emphatically knowing Brown or anyone matching his description. Gray had phoned me the night of the disaster and mentioned hearing a radio interview in which a witness reported seeing a flash of light just before the bridge went down. Afterward, it became clear that this was a flash caused by snapping power cables strung along the bridge. So, yeah. Yeah, I... Fucking whack jobs, dude. This whole story is full of them. Hello. Yeah, sorry. You're you're completely correct. There are just a ton of whack jobs. Um, oh, yeah, we Jake, already... we're recording a podcast. You can't just go silent on me. That's when I get nervous. Sorry, I start zoning out. I start. I'm like, like actively like disassociating right now. Sorry, I'm good. Don't um, make me in charge of entertaining the masses because you know that's not gonna go well. It's gonna <laughs> no, go very it's not. badly. It's not. It's we saw it earlier. Let's let's we're gonna skip this one because I already kind of I already kind of I already kind of skipped it. In fact, yeah, yeah. I have it written down two different places anyway. Oh wait, actually, no, no, we're just gonna skip it. All right, so at one point when Keel was going to interview a new witness, the witness was called beforehand by someone who sounded like his neighbor, and his apparently this person over the phone told him that Keel was dangerous and that he shouldn't talk to him. So when Keel showed up at this guy's house, the guy pulled a gun on him and told him to fucking Holy leave shit. and like said he wouldn't talk to him. And so That's got to be my favorite part of the story. So Keel, Keel like knocks on the door he's like, hey... Do you have a minute to talk? And the guy just pulled a gun on him. He's like, I know who you are. Get the fuck out. And Kill's like, okay. 
comes back the next day with Mary Hire, and she goes and talks to this guy because you know she's known in the area. And they come out laughing, and the guy's like, "Dude, you won't believe it! I got a call from a guy who sounded like my next door neighbor, uh, like ten minutes before you showed up." Sorry, there's like, the fuck is that? Sorry, someone's like Jake, is, Jake, is there an active crime going on outside Dude, your window? What, what the fuck, fuck is was going that? on? What's the fix? Someone's trying to communicate. <laughs> it's three thirty-eight a.m. Who is who is knocking on my ceiling? Wait, what? Oh, Jake! Oh, oh, Jake! Oh, Jake! That that that's not that's not knocking, dude. It stopped. Damn, that guy's quick. Shit. No, Wes, that's not what it was, you idiot. It wasn't squeaking. It was like thumping. I know, Jake. All right. Am I missing something here? Jake, imagine this, all right? So imagine uh-huh. there's a bed. Uh-huh. Why am I having this conversation with you? Imagine there's a bed, right? Uh-huh. And it, it's... Like, it doesn't even have to be slightly off-center. If it has a headboard, mm-hmm. or if it can oh. uh, shift in any way. You get what I'm oh. saying, right? God damn, man. Because you guys have, like, what, wooden beds? Yeah, actually. Yeah, that's thumping. That ain't creaking. That's Man, uh, you see, make it to 3.39 a.m. On... and you tap out after 30 seconds? God damn, man. Not even 30. <laughs> I, I heard it for like 10 seconds. Get a 10 alarm. second conversation. Like, literally, the car alarm was like, lasted longer. And that thing was over like that. <laughs> Holy shit, man. Jesus. <laughs> god damn. Oh my god. Poor bastard. <laughs> yeah. Yo. <laughs> Hopefully she won't tell her friends. Anyway. Um, you, Jake, tomorrow you need to bring him a cake and say congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. Uh, All right. Anyway. That's 30 seconds like we, of his life. We've trashed on him enough. Okay. Well, that's what he gets for fucking with our recording. Anyway. <laughs> it really? Like, come on, dude. Keep it down. He's 43. Okay, Wes, we got some, we got some other Men in Black stories. Hold on. Did I? Do I not include Peyton? How many more? Uh, basically two. Okay. Okay. So, one day, a stranger walked into <clears throat> Mrs. Hire's office. He was slightly built, about five feet seven inches tall, with black, piercing eyes and unruly black hair, <laughs> as if he had had a brush cut and he was just growing back in. His complexion was even darker than that of the two previous visitors, and he looked like a... Uh, Yep, not saying either of those words. He looked he looked Asian. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> His hands Jesus, were especially man. unusual, she thought, with unduly long, tapering fingers. He wore a cheap-looking, ill-fitting black suit, slightly out of fashion, and his tie was knotted in an odd, old-fashioned way. Strangely, he was not wearing an overcoat, despite the fierce cold outside. My name is Jack Brown, he announced in a hesitant manner. I'm a UFO researcher. Oh, Mary pushed aside the pile of papers on her desk and studied him. The day was ending, and she was ready to go home and try to get some sleep at last. This was like the day after the the bridge accident. Oh, okay. Yeah. After a brief, almost incoherent struggle to discuss UFO sightings, Brown stammered, What would, what would you do if someone ordered 
ordered you to stop, to stop printing UFO stories. Say, are you with those two men who were here earlier? She asked, surprised to hear the same weird question twice in one day. Fuck, I guess I forgot to include... Well, briefly explain that there were two men earlier who asked the same question. Yeah, there were, there were two men. <clears throat> anyway. They they looked like twins. They looked kind of Asian. They asked about flying saucer activity. And then they were like, has anyone told you not to publish these same reports? Old, same old. And then she was like, fuck off. And then she looked down and looked back up and they were gone. <clears throat> All right. No. No, I, I'm alone. I'm a friend of Gray, Gray Barker. Gray Barker of Clarksburg was West Virginia's best-known UFO investigator. He had published a number of books on the subject and was a frequent visitor to Point Pleasant. Do you know John Keel? His face tightened. I, I used to think, think the world of Kick Kick Keel. Then a few minutes ago, I bought a, a magazine. He has an article in it. He says he's seen UFOs himself. He's, he's a liar. I know he's seen things, Mary flared. I've been with him when he saw them. Brown smiled weakly at the success of his simple gambit. Could you t take me out to take me to where you at you and Keel saw things? I'm not going to do anything except go home to bed, Mary declared flatly. Is Kick Keel in P Point Pleasant? No, he lives in New York. I, I think he m makes up all these stories. Look, I can give you the names of some of the people here who have seen things, Mary said wearily. You can talk to them and decide for yourself, but I can't just escort you around. I'm a friend of Gr Gray Barker, he repeated lamely. So then he basically just left and that's... As, as someone with a stutter, I am mildly offended by that impressive rendition, I gotta admit. Well, I'm literally just reading word for word what he wrote. He wrote like K dash K dash Keel for Kika Keel. So, all right. Now, Wes, let's get to some 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 our our final Men in Black stories. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Ah, while Mothman and Indrid Cold attracted all the publicity and turned everyone's eyes to the deep skies of night, the strange ones began to arrive in West Virginia. They trooped down the hills, along the muddy back roads, up th from the winding hollers, like an army of leprechauns seeking impoverished shoemakers. Weirdest analogy I've ever seen, but whatever. <laughs> it was open season on the human race, and so the ancient procession of the damned marched once more. A doctor and his wife, driving along a country road in a snowstorm, saw a huge caped figure of a man struggling through the snow, so they stopped to give him a ride. He vanished. There was nothing but whirling snowflakes and night where he had stood. Black limousines halted in front of the hill homes, and deeply tanned census takers, in quotes, inquired about the number of children living with the families. Always the children. In several instances, the <laughs> occupants of the big black cars merely asked for a glass of water. The old fairy trick, taken up from the Middle Ages and dusted off. A blonde woman in her thirties, well-groomed with a soft southern accent, visited people in Ohio and West Virginia whom I had interviewed. She introduced herself as, quote, John Keel's secretary, thus winning instant admission. The clipboard she carried held a complicated form filled with personal questions about the witness's health, income, the type of cars they owned, their general family background, and some fairly sophisticated questions about the UFO sightings. Not the type of questions a run-of-the-mill UFO buff would ask. 
I have no secretary. I didn't learn about this woman until months later, when one of my friends in Ohio wrote to me and happened to mention, quote, as I told your secretary when she was here. Then I checked and found out she had visited many people, most of whom I had never mentioned in print. How had she located them? There were other weird types on the loose. In early December, one of them tried to waylay Miss Marcella Bennett, one of the ladies who had had the frightening meeting with Mothman in the TNT area in November 16. Good old sacrifice the baby lady. She and her small daughter, Tina, were driving along a deserted back road outside of Point Pleasant when she became aware of a red Ford Galaxy following her. It was driven by a large man, a stranger, she said, who appeared to be wearing a very bushy fright wig. She slowed down, expecting the vehicle would pass. Instead, it tried to force her off the road. She accelerated, and the other car raced around her, shot down the road, and disappeared around a bend. Oh, sorry, I'm going to yawn. It's almost four in the morning. When she circled the bend, she was alarmed to find that the Ford was now parked crossways on the narrow dirt road, blocking it. Badly frightened, she warned her daughter to hold on and jammed the gas pedal onto the floor. The other driver, seeing that she didn't mean to stop, pulled over hastily and let her pass. She had never seen the man before, and she never saw him again. So... So, is this lady just allergic to keeping her daughter away from harm? I know. Holy shit. I'm surprised during the story it's not mentioned that she attempted to offer the baby to the man in the car. Like, she's, like, holding it out the window. She's like, take it! Please take it! God damn it. Here, you can have it. I don't care. Okay. What the fuck was that? Oh, Jesus. Never mind, Shane. Holy fuck, that scared me. All right, anyway... Mrs. Mary Heyer entertained the first of her long string of peculiar visitors early in January 1967. She was working late in her office opposite the county courthouse when her door opened and a very small man entered. He was about four feet six inches tall, she told me in a phone call short uh, soon afterward. Although it was 20 degrees Fahrenheit outside, he was wearing nothing. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm getting tired. By the way, this is my favorite fucking story. Yeah, he was wearing nothing but a short-sleeved blue shirt and blue trousers of thin-looking material. His eyes were dark and deep-set and were covered with thick-lensed glasses. He was wearing odd shoes with very thick soles, which probably added an inch or two to his height. Speaking in a low, halting voice, he asked her for directions to Welch, West Virginia, a town in the southeastern tip of the state. She thought at first that he had some kind of speech impediment. His black hair was long and cut squarely, quote, like a bowl haircut, and his eyes remained fixed on her in an unflinching, hypnotic way. Quote, He kept getting closer and closer, she reported, his funny eyes staring at me almost hypnotically. He told her a long-winded, disjointed story about his truck breaking down in Detroit, Michigan. He had hitchhiked all the way from Detroit. As he talked, he inched closer and closer to her, and she became frightened, thinking she had some kind of knot on her hands. She pulled back from her desk and ran into the back room where her newspaper circulation manager was working on a telephone campaign. He joined her, and they spoke together to the little man. He seemed to know more about West Virginia than we did, she declared later. At one point, the telephone rang, and while she was speaking on it, the little man picked up a ballpoint pen from her desk and examined it with amazement, as if he had never seen a pen before. You can have that if you want it, she offered. He resounded with a loud, peculiar laugh, a kind of cackle. Then he ran out into the night and disappeared around a corner. The next day, Mrs. Heyer checked with the sheriff's office to find out if there was any, quote, mentally deficient person on the loose. I'm quoting the book directly. The answer was negative. 
<laughs> he fucking grabs the pen, <laughs> giggles like a maniac, and sprints out the door. Um. So yeah, oh, there shit. were. That's 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 all I have for entertaining stuff out of this book. I think we mined it for all we've got. There were a lot more anecdotes about other things oh, of the world, uh, as well as you know those of the contactees that John Keel was in contact with. Like, remember how I mentioned that one of them took place in Adelphi, Maryland? Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently the the sighting in Adelphi, Maryland, the guy was taken to Lanyolos. Oh no way! Are you serious? Holy I'm serious. Shit. Yeah, and he like. That's not just one. Woody... That's two. Yeah, he talked to Woody Derenberger, and they like they're. Their descriptions matched up, and then apparently John Keel like published his th- this student's information in like uh, a magazine with the student's permission. And then the student later was like, "Take it all back, like don't take my name out of things. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about anything anymore." And he wouldn't say why. He got but, absolutely. Uh, well, he he either got um, threatened or absolutely trashed by the people around him. Who were like, Lamulos, huh? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we mm-hmm. can we can go more into like Woody Derenberger and what he claims and all that in the future, but at this point, it's on the No, that 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 dude got fucking pregnant by aliens. <laughs> I don't he, yeah. his story I don't want it. I don't want to know his story. Apparently, I don't want to, I'd rather hear No. Apparently, no. injured nope. cold was at his funeral. That's what his daughter says. Now, I know that. I know that little part. It's they. They talk about how he and Indrid became good friends until the end. I mean, yeah. yeah someone impregnated. You want to hear that story? Good working relationship for the kid. Well, <laughs> well, he wasn't the one that impregnated him. It was like someone else. What? Maybe he. Yeah. Maybe it was like so. Indrid cold a cock. Maybe it wasn't. Oh yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Time. I feel like, I feel like the second he smile? laid eyes on, like the second he laid eyes on on Woody, he was like, "You're mine." And then later he's like, oh, well, no, I no, guess no, 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 wrong. As soon as he laid eyes on Woody, he was like, oh, yeah, you're theirs. Mm-hmm. You're theirs. That's what he was thinking. <laughs> oh, no. Little did he know a 200-pound hound of the Baskerville was sitting up there on land. No, <laughs> please stop. Please. Oh, God. Oh, man, that's terrible. You, you know, you know there's going to be some fan fiction about that if anyone ever listens to this fucking episode. I don't think anyone's going to listen to it. I'm going to be honest, Wes. I think if, this episode's going to be our worst fan fic is made. Today. If that fanfic is made, send it to JTL. Wait, what? Please stop reading my email out. Please. <laughs> it's not that one. It's... Okay, never mind. Fine. Don't read don't out my send other it to email. email. Send it to his phone number, 240. Stop! Stop! Oh my god, please stop. <laughs> Do I have to mute you? <laughs> okay. Alright, I'm done. I'm done. Backslash half, capital H, talentless, capital T. Um, hit like Send the fanfic there. Send it, DM it though, because uh, Jake <laughs> controls that stuff. Oh god. And Twitter's fine with that kind of stuff. Just put it, just yeah, go, go, go to our Facebook page, DM me there, or something. Because Twitter's kind of a nightmare yes. right now. Jake is, Jake is, full, is fully endorsing you send him this fanfic, if ever made. I mean, I'd 100% read it for like a for like a bonus show. If you guys can just send us, like, like this is oh. an idea we had for a Patreon, didn't we? We'd, we'd make a Patreon, and for like, yes. I don't know, a buck, you can like, submit whatever, <laughs> something you want us to read out on air. And we'll probably vet it beforehand. 
but we'll read I'll it. I'll do it. No, I won't. You've seen my Reddit episodes. I won't do it. I won't. We've had moments. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> Wes, I'm going to have to read it. I'm going to have to read them ahead of time. <laughs> oh, Jesus. No, I'll, I, don't I, know, I feel I, like that's a worry. good way to Probably. drive up engagement. You know what? I love that idea. You know what? How about this? Um, send it to our... What, Facebook? We got to find a way. How would we do this? Could Just we do it on. over Twitter or Facebook? Either over Twitter or Facebook... Send us uh, a link to a story, whether it's from Reddit, whether you wrote it, whether you found it, wherever it might be, and we will make a bonus episode solely for that. And if and if we go down that course, yeah, that that's a genius idea, Jake. I'm a genius. I want to say, but yeah, this right. has been this has been Mothman. Yeah, a lot of Men in Black in there. We're back, season two. Yeah, it, it's it's been back. Two. It's been here. It's here now. Wes, you have to write an episode for next week. I will work on that. As long as there's some progress, I'll fucking take it. I'm so fucking burnt I'll out. I've it. I've gotten like, dude, I could have had all my homework this week done by Tuesday, but I'm so burnt it, out. It sounds like you need a Reddit episode. I do need a Reddit episode, actually. If if our listeners can pump out Reddit stories for us to read in time for next oh, week, shit. I'll do a Reddit episode. Between listener submissions and whatever I find in my Reddit escapades, that that's next week. Next week, no category, no category. This is free, like free for all. Reddit. Oh man, we'll call it you know listener Reddit. submissions. I know that's the beauty of it. I'll even I'll even tweet Elon Musk directly and ask him. To send us a story of his own. I feel like it's only fair since we just trashed Twitter a few minutes ago. Yeah. I mean, fuck Elon. I don't like that guy. Let's let him send us a story. Let's also, like give him, Let's, like, give him a creative writing prompt so we can make fun of him. We can be like, you didn't learn to write as a child, you fucking loser. Wow. Oh, I forgot. You, uh, you are not a fan. No, I'm not I either. I don't like Elon Musk. Musk. I think he's a dick. Real dick. He got all his money because right. daddy ran slave mines in South Africa. Hold on, I gotta send you something. Oh boy. Are you sending this over text or Discord? Discord. Oh man. Oh wait, ignore that. It didn't it didn't go through right. I downloaded it as a text file? Hold on. What the fuck? No 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 no. What? Hold on. Hold on. Entertain, Jake. Entertain quick. Uh, we are on Twitter at twitter.com slash half capital H talentless capital T. Uh, Facebook, just it's a page called Half Talentless Podcast. No hyphenations, nothing. Um, all caps. Or sorry, all caps at the beginning of the words. My, my apologies. Um, and by that, I mean the beginning of each word is capitalized. I made that way more confusing than it had to be. Uh, yeah, hit us up on any of those. Uh, I think i have notifications on so and i'll check them once a week so yeah if if you have anything you want us to, if you have any topics you want us to go over if you have a listener submission now because we're doing that apparently um we're trying to get the half yep. gaming channel or going, if you just want to interact it's gonna might, that one might take a while yeah i mean i'm working on it. um 
There we go. All right. So I have nothing else to add, but one thing, Jake, do you have anything else to add? No, no, no. I'm done. All right. Check Discord. Wes. Wes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that picture I sent J I just sent Jake will be on our Twitter. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. And with that, I've been Wes. I've been Jake. And thank you for listening. This has been the Half Talentless Podcast. <laughs>